Welcome to the Forest Overstory podcast. This podcast explores forest stewardship in the Pacific Northwest, helping landowners and professionals gain new insights and information in the field of forest management. The Forest Overstory is a product of the Washington State University Extension Forestry Program and is supported by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and the Society of American Foresters. All right, well, welcome back and Happy New Year. I am Patrick Schultz, your host and Extension Forester with Washington State University. I hope you all had great holidays and are looking forward to the coming year of the Forest Overstory podcast. Uh, we're kicking things off really well. Uh, we're kicking off 2024 right with a conversation about a very innovative WSU program addressing something that all of our listeners will be interested in, uh, and that's forest health, a very important topic to be discussing, and it's a big topic, um, but we'll, we'll get into the nitty-gritty a little later. Before I do that, I want to welcome back my co-host and fellow Extension Forester, uh, Molly Dar. Molly, how's it going? It's going great, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me back on. I'm excited to be here for this conversation today. Well, it's always good to have you. Glad to have you back on the program. And as I said, we're starting off the year really well uh, with a great guest, uh, frankly, a long overdue guest, um, someone we've been wanting to have on for a while. We've actually had quite a few requests to have this person on. I can't say that about every guest. So we are joined today by Joey Holbert, um, a researcher with WSU Extension Research Center in Puyallup and manager of the Forest Health Watch program, which is a very, very cool program that we're going to talk about today. Uh, so Joey, thanks for joining us. How are you? Great, great. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for the kind words and the introduction. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here finally and excited to share about the work and the opportunities at in Washington and beyond. Yeah, yeah. Like, as I said, I mean, we've been wanting, you've been on my list since the very start of the podcast. Uh, over a year and a half ago now, and it's really just my fault for taking so long to get you on. So we're excited to finally have you here. Maybe we start just by getting to know you a little better, um, and you can tell us a little about your your background and how you ended up at, at WSU in this position. Yeah, excellent. This is you know this is kind of fun for me. It's almost a full circle because I think a lot of what I do now was inspired by a radio show. So um, I was an undergraduate at Washington State University um, in 2020. I grew up in Kansas, actually, in a, in a landscape deprived of trees in the Kanza Prairie. So when my family moved to Pullman, I had to study forestry at Washington State University. And I'm thrilled that I did. But while in Pullman, I, I went had the opportunity to be a broadcaster or uh, have a radio show on um, KZUU, the college radio station. And after that, I went to Oregon State University for a master's and was also on their radio program, KBVR. And um, at KBVR, we started a program called Inspiration Dissemination, and it was a talk show and we would invite grad students on to share about their research and their science. And I think that really inspired me to pursue a science communication and a science engagement type of uh, program. And, and that's where we are today talking about Forest Health Watch, how we can get more communities engaged in um, learning and also studying and discovering 
about tree health issues. Well, that's awesome. I just learned two things. One, that you're a fellow Midwesterner, um, which is great. I love I love having Midwesterners on. And for some reason, we have a lot of them on. Uh, but second, that you should probably have my job with all your radio experience. <laughs> you have much more than I, it sounds like. Um, but I'm curious, uh, you know, in your in your master's and your your further you know graduate work, what was your area of study like? What did you actually um, you know focus on inside of forestry? Yeah, good question. Um, so as an undergrad at WSU, I tried really hard to have summer research experiences, and my first field season was with uh, Rocky Mountain Research Station in the University of Idaho, looking at um, forest fire and prescribed fire and thinning, um, pre-commercial thinning and kind of the impacts they have on wildfire. Um, after that, I, I did a field study with like climate and growth in Sierra Nevadas. That was my second summer as an undergrad. And then my third summer was on uh, mountain pine beetles in, um, in Eastern Oregon. And, and that kind of gave me a well-rounded experience in, in forest health, I would say. But it was really during my master's or like just before my master's, I was working with Everett Hansen at Oregon State University and learning about sudden oak death. And so that started me on this trajectory of plant pathology and plant diseases and forest pathology. Um, and so as a master's student, I studied a group of microbes called Phytophthora, that cause some important tree diseases and agriculture diseases, but notably um, sudden oak death. And then I continued to study that group during a PhD and I went over to South Africa um, and did a PhD at the University of Pretoria with the Forestry and Agriculture Biotechnology Institute. And I studied Phytophthora diversity in their kind of biodiversity hotspot, the Cape Floristic region. So. Together, all of those experiences have really given me a background in uh, forest pathology and in thinking about how microbes affect the health of our plants and trees. Joey, that's incredible. And it's really putting quite a few pieces together for me. Like, so, you know, I've, I've only been here for about a year or so, and I was immediately struck by one, how calm and capable and collected you are at leading all of these different meetings and how you appear behind a mic. So your personal history is definitely, um, that makes a lot more sense to me now. And then also just, yeah, something, you know, being in the forest health field, um, it's just, it's abundantly clear how crazy diverse it is. And it's like, you can't really be comfortable just saying that you're any one kind of expert. You sort of have to be a generalist about pathology and forest pests and climate change and all this different stuff. So all of your background really makes sense why you were able to start like such a terrific and impactful program like Forest Health Watch. Um, I was wondering if you could just kind of give us a little bit of a background of how that came about um, and a general description of what Forest Health Watch is. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, thanks so much for the kind words. You you both are um, giving me more credit than I deserve, I feel like. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, pretty much my path to get to where I am, you know, is because I had really great mentors and a lot of good opportunities. and, and um, happy to share more about any of that, but the Forest Health Watch 
um, really just came about through, um, you know, passion for community engagement and, and kind of filling that space between scientists and society or members of society. Um, but I really, really, I think I attribute that interest to um, my time with Inspiration Dissemination, that radio show. So during that um, was the first time I was ever introduced to this concept called citizen science. And um, somewhere out there, there's this recording of this discussion we were having um, with someone who worked with whale watchers to track individual whales in Alaska. And there's, um, in that case, the, the people leading the tour boats and taking people on whale watching events were um, kind of experts, but also citizen scientists helping collect data and information. And so ever since learning about that kind of application of citizen science and the in the the method that you know professionals like an arborist for example can get involved in our tree health work um, i've always wanted to do projects that anyone can contribute to or that people without formal training can contribute to so in south africa for my phd we actually started a program called cape citizen science with that same interest and we tried really hard to engage communities in the research and collecting samples and learning about microbes in the environment. And we did something like 19 different hikes with uh, underserved youth in South Africa and it was incredible and I loved it. Um, and so leaning on that experience in South Africa, we wanted to do a similar thing in the Northwest and um, got really fortunate to find the opportunity. We applied for a USDA um, National Institute of Food and Ag Fellowship. Um, so they have postdoctoral, they have graduate student fellowships and postdoctoral fellowships. And we are grateful and fortunate to receive one to start the Forest Health Watch. And so that was in like 2020, um, May of 2020, we got that funding. And at that time, the proposal was actually titled Forest Health Defenders. Uh-huh. Uh, you might not know that. No. But no. then, uh, you know, once we got the funding, we kind of like pivoted and stepped back and asked our stakeholders and our partners, like, what should we title the program and what should we research and what is the priority concern um, that we need information about the most urgently? So no, once I think we had the funding... Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry to step on you. I, I was just thinking that that makes a lot of sense. It kind of puts the ownership. It's like a neighborhood watch almost, like puts the ownership on the um, the participants, the citizens to, I don't know, take, um, like the forest is their own to protect and to, um, I, I don't know, just be active in that protection and that surveillance. Yeah, I think I'm, I, I hear you. I, I agree. Like there's, the sense of guardianship that we could instill a lot better. Um, you look at countries like New Zealand and you have like the Maori people um, and um, they just, there's just so much like maybe because it's just an island, but there's this sense of biosecurity. Like everyone has a responsibility in protecting, you know, our cowrie trees or our culturally important trees or communities that rely on this. But in the U S we don't necessarily feel that or it's not, you know, it's not as clear, like, 
you say biosecurity and someone's like, what is that? And, mm. you know, how, why am I responsible for keeping our trees healthy? And there's the, someone in the government that does that, right? You know, right. Like, so there's this kind of a, that's an important piece that we could leverage a little better. And I think that's one of the main goals of the Forest Health Watch is to kind of provide people with that opportunity to step up and help guard or, you know, sometimes I ask like, are scientists the only ones carrying the weight of biosecurity on their shoulders? You know, mm. um, how do we share those pressures and the, the need to protect our environment or our trees a little more? Yeah. And I have to say like, you're, you worded it as providing an opportunity. Cause I think, I think that's really accurate. Cause there's, there are a lot of people care about trees whether or not it's something they actively think about it's you know i don't know but everyone at least has a passive admiration for trees and then when you start seeing these forest health issues it's when that gets really triggered and then uh, suddenly people that finding that they have this energy you know this concern that they need to to direct somewhere uh, about these trees but they have nowhere to turn you know and i think that's something i've run into a lot in this job is people with you know no forestry background very little you know, background in, in, you know, any sort of plant science um, and, and not really knowing what to do with this concern they have for these trees that they see dying alongside of the road. And, and I think Forest Health Watch does such a good job of giving people an opportunity and sort of empowering them. So uh, I think maybe you should go back to Forest Health Defenders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Very empowering yeah. name. Yeah, I think. You know, it sounds more like a nonprofit, though, and we we. Oh sure. Um, I don't know. I guess there. It wasn't that we didn't really like it. I just feel like that was a proposal that we wrote without engaging our stakeholders. And we, for me, like, there's a difference between community science and citizen science, and it's kind of depends on how engaged the community is in shaping and creating and identifying the issues. And so to really make this more of a community-based program, we wanted to like be as inclusive as we could in, in the decisions about what, what it's called and where, you know, where are the actors and what are the problems. Um, could you actually describe what the difference is between community and citizen science to you? Because I don't yeah. think I'm really familiar with that. So, I mean, I think a lot of people use it kind of interchangeably now. And I think that's fair because there's a lot of pushback on the terminology of, you know, citizen. We want to, essentially, we want to engage anyone and um, don't want to limit to citizens by definition, right? And this is very much an American problem because of the, um, just the, the use of the term citizen. But, uh, so, but it, it's tricky too because community science is by its own right, its own discipline. And there has been community science for a long time. And and this is essentially, you know, the community comes up with the problem, figures out the research that's needed or the data collection that's needed, and then addresses or finds that data to address that problem on their own. Whereas citizen science is typically like a researcher has a question they're interested in, so they solicit citizen participation um, to address or answer that question. But we want to be more inclusive than that traditional kind of citizen science role. At least I do. So 
Um, that's why we we try and do more community engagement up front. Um, for example, Molly and, and I have been hosting some collaborator updates recently where we're asking all our partners and stakeholders, like, what should we study next? You know, trying to um, rely on our communities to figure out what is the most important um, before, like, trying to design a project around it and decide if citizen science or community science is a feasible approach. But sorry, yeah, those I think have I been really fruitful. No, I, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought up those meetings. I, I and it wanted to lead me into another question that I had. But um, I, I thought that those discussions have been really fruitful. And just to me, I'm blown away by just the amount of passion across the board with all of these different stakeholders that we have. So many people really have like concrete, fully formed ideas that they want to jump in and sink their teeth into. But you know, there's always the question of time and funding, and then. You know, but through bringing up those 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 topics that they're feeling like they want to address, but they don't have the way to do it, other folks are able to step in and kind of lend a helping hand and be like, "Oh, well, I've got a pool of money that could potentially be directed towards that. Let's have an offline conversation." Um, so I've I've found those to be really I don't know pretty thrilling, honestly, um, to witness. Yeah. Uh, Joey, I was wondering if you could talk to us about maybe some specific um, citizen science initiatives that you have been really psyched about since starting Forest Health Watch back in 2020. Yeah, cool. Um, you know, we, we designed the project to be, a well, excuse me, we designed the program to be more of a program where there's multiple projects within the program, if that makes sense. So the Forest Health Watch you know, it needs to be in a position where it can change depending on a new issue. You know, for example, if Mediterranean oak borer um, shows up more places, um, like it has been found in Oregon recently, you know, maybe leveraging the community that we built to to look for Mediterranean oak borer. But it's hard to say what the next issue is going to be, so to be flexible is important. So we've kind of structured the Force Health Watch to have different projects. And the pilot project was really focused on the dieback of Western red cedar, which we can talk about a little more in a minute. But generally there's a ton of projects that excite me and would be, I think, I guess what I'm, what I'm most interested in is finding those projects that are most exciting to communities as well, to, to, to people on the front lines or to, to youth that we could reach out to in schools. But, a couple projects, um, you know, there's a couple of tree health issues that we're, we're looking at and thinking about. Like there's been some reports of dieback in Western um, hemlock. Um, there's also some issues with sword ferns. And so we've been thinking about projects along that. But there's also some really neat projects out there like this project led by Yuri Holker's program at University of Florida in the past called the Backyard Bark Beetles, where they developed this really cool method of luring bark beetles in with hand sanitizer into these like Coke bottles that they've reused and retrofitted into traps. And I, I, we did that just very like once or twice with youth in South Africa. And the, the reason I'm so intrigued by it is because the youth just loved it. It was like such a fun activity to do with youth catching these bark beetles. And so while the bark beetles or the ambrosia beetles may not be, you know, our stakeholders' number one concern at the moment, 
um, maybe it is maybe um, but either way I think it's it could be a fun project to look at um, going forward just because of the kind of the fun that the communities can have with it with this before we move on I do want to say like any of our listeners we'd love to hear from you on like what your what your priority concern is or what tree health issues you would like to see more research on um, you know don't hesitate to reach out foresthealth.org there's a there's a page on there where you can recommend a research project or you can just contact us honestly i i just gotta give you kudos for developing such a i'm just struck by how evergreen the concept is um, it just seems like a program that's very adaptable, very dynamic, and modular in a way that it can take on new projects as they arise. And the unfortunate reality is that, you know, for forest health, there's always been forest health issues, but the next century, it looks like there's going to be a lot more. Um, and so it's it's really, this is a very dynamic program. I'm excited to see how it, how it rises to meet a lot of those. Like you said, like Mediterranean oak borer, emerald ash borer, any other invasive species, it's just one facet. Um, but yeah, lot, lots of cool projects that keep people engaged and hopefully kind of have a little fun, like you said, while they're doing it. I, I do want to dive, as you said, a little more into one of your projects, like the Western Red Sea, the, the pilot project, the one that's been going on long, just to kind of get, you know, into the nitty gritty and, and so people can have an understanding of how one of these individual projects looks. So, like you said, Western Red Cedar decline, you know, this is a this is a phenomenon that's been happening in Washington for a little while. Can you describe for our listeners what that refers to? Yeah, so, um, you know, and I guess there's some, depending on who you talk to, they, they prefer the term dieback um, versus decline. And I guess that's related to decline. There's a number of diseases that are actually called declines because they know there's a biotic organism causing the decline. Um, Whereas in the red cedar case, we've been calling it Western red cedar dieback because we don't really know what the cause was, or we didn't until recently, you know. Um, so recently, some colleagues from Washington State University, led by Robbie Andrus, um, would be a great guest in the future, um, did an incredible study where they, they kind of cored trees at different health categories and different, um, you know, time since mortality essentially and we're able to link or like find evidence for a relationship between the western red cedar dieback and the recent longer and hotter summers we're having in the northwest and so it does seem like western red cedar dieback is primarily an issue because of recent climates or recent events climatic events um, and the just general trend of, of longer and hotter summers in the Northwest. But uh, we've been, you know, since 2020, we've been kind of engaging communities to look at this and to map where trees are healthy and where they're unhealthy. And this, we've just been building this incredible network of um, community scientists that are passionate about this and, um, for example, I, you know, more than 700 people joined the iNaturalist project and more than 300 of them have shared observations 
of either a healthy or unhealthy tree. And some individuals have shared like 250 trees on there. So there's just some dedicated, incredible people willing to share in their um, kind of pursuit of knowledge and understanding about what's going on with Western red cedar dieback. Um, so yeah, I think maybe, maybe late November we were celebrating because more than 2,500 trees have been shared by community scientists now. And, and it's just an incredible data set that, um, We've been slowly analyzing, but we certainly, you know, welcome anyone else to participate and get involved in the data analysis of this. It, all that data is is open; it's available on iNaturalist, and um, we're, we would love to to work with more people and make sure anyone that's interested can be involved and included. So that's kind of where we're at. We have this awesome data set and this awesome network. And the next steps are you know, teasing out some of the patterns, trying to make some you know, predictive maps of where we anticipate red cedar to be um, healthy or unhealthy or in that margin. Um, but then also, you know, think about next steps. Like now that we know western red cedar may be vulnerable to longer and hotter droughts, what should we do? Yeah, that's, yeah, that is a huge question. And we should we should definitely take some time to dig into that, but I got to stop and say congratulations on that 2,500 observation mark. That's re really exciting. Uh, that was right, right? 2,500? Yeah, thanks. It's um, It's been really cool to see it just kind of keep going and keep going. And, uh, you know, we just put a lot of effort into raising awareness about the project and, and maintaining the quality of the observations that are shared and reporting back to contributors about, you know, what's going on and what, what we're using it for. Um, and so it's been neat to see it creep up there, but, you know, I do want to step back as well and acknowledge that, um, you know, that project was co-created with, um, well, I should step back even further and say, okay, from the start of Forest Health Watch, once we even determined the title, Red Cedar was clearly, um, the, pre the most pressing concern for a lot of our partners, um, you know, a lot of our stakeholders. And um, the Forest Service and Washington Department of Natural Resources and um, Oregon Department of Forestry were already kind of working on a, a ArcGIS dashboard for their own staff to just mark points where trees are healthy or unhealthy. Um, well, they were actually doing like little plots kind of measuring where trees are healthy and unhealthy. And so we wanted to work with them just to make make it so that the public could participate and anyone could contribute to that. And also recognizing that it's it's very widespread and um, it's a very urgent issue. And so, um, so early, you know, the project we developed with them was on iNaturalist. Um, we worked with them to determine which questions to include and things like that. And they've used this information that community scientists have shared um, in their own dashboards and their own kind of analyses, looking at what's going on with Western Red Cedar. And so it's been really neat to see that full circle as well. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it must be a really rewarding experience for people or else they wouldn't keep coming back and, and doing it. Like you said, you have some that have submitted over 250 observations. That's, that's really cool. Um, yeah, let me tell you. 
if you don't mind, I could. Oh, go ahead. Um, the individual who did 250 observations also approached us with his own hypothesis about um, trees. So Western red cedar, every year they drop some of their older needles, like their seven-year-old needles. You'll see the internal browning, the browning of the internal part of the branch, like the foliage on the innermost part of the branch is the oldest. And so you'll see every year, every fall, red cedar will start dropping some of those old needles. And so this individual, um, Jim, he's so incredible. He's already contributed a ton of time and effort to mapping red cedar um, throughout the Tacoma area. But he approached us with this hypothesis that trees which were receiving water in the summer are going to have less browning foliage than trees um, that weren't receiving summer water. And so we worked with him to like, design that project. And he then went back to many of these 250 trees and evaluated how much browning they had. And so it's been just amazing to see like some of these community scientists take it above and beyond onto their next, like, now I want to investigate this other question. Can you help me? And we're like, yes, we would love to help you do that. Um, so that's been really rewarding too, just having that you know, that interaction with community members that are that passionate and, um, you know, want to contribute to research in their own way. Yeah, what a great example of community science. I think we can all attest to like how short staffed and how limited capacity we could be in the academic world and the research world. And being able to have spirited volunteers that are willing to go out and do some of that critical work is enormously valuable um so that's that's just such a cool example and i want to ask too because you know i my experience with western red cedar dieback is that it, it really seems to be tied to site and and i don't know if you both agree but it to me it seems that what we're seeing too is kind of just a decline of cedar habitat maybe long term some spaces that can no longer sustain cedar uh, where it might have been able to before and that that you know that may be ahead of the the research um for, for sure but this kind of seems to me that that's the direction we're going i'm just curious you know at the individual level what kind of data do people need to be able to collect i mean for, for someone listening that wants to get started in this and they're worried that they might not you know know all the terms or anything like that like what kind of site level data do they need to know about yeah it's okay i I think you're right about the kind of just the change in habitat and um, the shift in where red cedar is going to do well or do poor into the future. Um, but very often you'll see like a healthy tree next to an unhealthy tree. And so there's still a lot of need for research to understand what's causing that variation within a site. But that's another, you know, maybe the next research project. Um, but yeah, generally, you know, we tried to simplify it as, you know, fairly as much as we could generally. And so a lot of people are just adding observations of individual trees. Um, and then you kind of categorize what you're seeing. There's four questions that are pretty core. Um, one of them is like, what symptoms do you see? And so major, the main symptoms that people report is like the canopy will be thin or it will be really easy to see through 
And so that's what we call thinning, like it's dropped so much foliage that you can kind of see the skyline behind it um, more than you would in, in a normal healthy condition. The other symptom that's common, at least on the west side of the Cascades, is this top dieback where you'll see, um, you know, the upper third of the tree is just dead and has no more needles where the lower part of the crown may still be healthy and, and vigorous. Um, so generally I'd say, uh, you know, there is a, a field guide on our webpage, foresthealth.org slash map. Um, which gives you instructions for how to participate and contribute to the iNaturalist project. Um, and through that field guide, hopefully in you know, some self-discovery, you can feel good about um, using iNaturalist, but we're also there to, to help. You know, we want this to be kind of an equitable teaching opportunity too. So if there isn't users that need extra help, uh, we're available. And, and we'd be thrilled to either meet with you or chat with you on the phone to help troubleshoot some of the issues. Um, but really, it's just a you take a photo and you answer a couple questions about that photo. I'm glad that you brought up iNaturalist again, Joey. I think I think that we've been seeing a lot of successes um, involved with that. I, I know um, just yesterday I was given a talk and we talked about um, the northern giant hornet and also even emerald ash borer and by looking at the iNatural maps there are so many committed individuals on the ground who are checking traps who are doing surveys all on their own and they're reporting back to the correct authorities in a way that it still looks like i mean the northern giant hornet again two years in a row hasn't been found um and that's because people speak up and they say what they see um so i think i think it's just such a cool tool and i really applaud you for um increasing the exposure of iNaturalist, I think, to the general public in a way that I haven't really seen before. Um, and, um, you know, like Patrick kind of mentioned earlier in the conversation, there's there's sort of just a, a lot of times you run into sort of a, a there's a, there's a passion, there's a commitment to wanting to see healthy forests, but people don't know how to push that energy forward or how to direct their attention. Um, so I was wondering, are there any other upcoming projects that you're excited about um, that, that you'd like to kind of bring to the attention of the public now? Um, yeah, thanks, Molly. That's, you know, that's really good feedback. And you're right, iNaturalist is an exceptional tool out there. You know, the reason we chose iNaturalist because it's open and the data is available to other researchers or other individuals that want to do some um, mapping using observations of organisms, but the other reason is because there's it's a really stable platform, so it'll continue to exist on our phones and our computers for a long time, and there's already an enormous community of people using it, and so you're right, there's lots of amateur mycologists, there's lots of like entomologists, there's folks that add observations whenever they see something out of the ordinary, like a giant hornet or a spotted lanternfly. Um, and so we really want to just see more use of uh, iNaturalist. And, um, you know, we're thinking about projects that you can use it for. So um, we, we, we have a number of projects on there. Um, the most recent is we've been visiting some sword ferns um, to collect some soil samples around sword ferns that are unhealthy. And that's another, you know, opportunity for folks to get involved or contact us. 
But we're in this process of, of deciding where, you know, what should the focus be next? We were fortunate to receive some funding from the Forest Service through the Biden um, infrastructure law or the bipartisan infrastructure law package um, to continue the Forest Health Watch for the next three years. Um, so we have just a small amount of money, but it's just nice to have that three years of support. And so we're now in this phase of like, well, what should we focus on for the next three years? Um, you know, is there a next piece to the red cedar that we should work on? Is there uh, a new invasive issue that we want to, you know, build community around and be prepared to address? For example, the, um, the potential impacts of Mediterranean oak borer on Gary Oak is something that um, maybe you know another a focus we need to pursue. But generally, we're we're looking to the listeners to know what's most important. And so, um, please let us know if there's an issue you think we should focus on. Um, and yeah, with that, you know, we're also. Thrilled because Molly, uh, the co-host on this show, has also agreed to help co-direct the Forest Health Watch. And so the expertise that you bring, Molly, with uh, entomology is really exciting to us. And we, we're happy to follow your lead a little bit and, and see where you want to go with it. You can't see me, but I'm grinning really wide. I'm, I'm so excited to be a part of Forest Health Watch. Um, I'm absolutely floored with all that you've been able to accomplish already. And I just feel like it is just the warmest, most welcoming community that I could hope to be involved with. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for our collaborations to come. Um, and I also can't believe that we're already wrapping up our time together here. Joey, while we still have you, I'm on the Forest Health Watch site. I see a connect with us tab. Is that the best play way for um, the listeners to get in touch um, with their ideas and suggestions? Um, that, that's a good way to just contact me directly or, or I guess contact you and I, um, but there's also a, a page on there. I think it's like, um, horsehealth.org slash, um, projects maybe, or, um, well, we can sure. be sure to link to it yeah. in, in the, um, episode description. Yeah. That sounds, uh, like a good call to action to go out on uh also really cool to be uh dropping some big news here at the start of the year uh molly being co-director i didn't actually know that until just before recording uh this episode for the listeners uh so it's really really cool cool to be putting this together and really excited to see what you guys do uh together going forward yeah and you know anyone is Im invited to be more involved in shaping that program um I don't feel like I feel like the more people involved and the greater the community contribute, you know, influencing where it goes, the more meaningful it will be. And so, Patrick, you're absolutely welcome to participate as much as you like in shaping it. And we're just thrilled that WSU has hired Molly as a you know force health extension specialist and brings some expertise in entomology and um, is you know, a key piece for the Forest Health Watch to bring that kind of technical advisory into it. So um, we really welcome more input. And, you know, it's not a perfect program. It could always be better. So um, we just love it to have more support or more more input from 
stakeholders and partners and community members. That's great. And that's just, again, back to that kind of evergreen concept. I just think it's a, it's just such a cool program. And I really appreciate you coming on to talk with us. Um, yeah, for the listeners, we'll have that link where you can uh, get engaged, get involved with the, with the Forest Health Watch program. We'll, we'll have that in the, the, the episode description. So keep an eye out for that. But with that, I'm going to close us out. Um, thank you all for joining. As always, check forestry.wsu.edu for extension events coming up in your way. Um, and we look forward to the, the future programming in 2024. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Molly.